Would you please stand for a reading of God's word? This morning I'll be reading from the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, beginning with 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Now verse 25. At the end of 40 days they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back the word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to this land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Malachites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with them said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out as a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Enoch, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. Chapter 14, verse one. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, were with those among those who had spied out the land, and they tore their clothes. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we continue our sermon series through the life of Moses, we're turning from the book of Exodus to the book of Numbers. And you might be wondering, well, what does the book of Numbers have to do with me? What relevance could it actually have in my life? I don't know if you've actually ever read the book of Numbers. Maybe you've just kind of skimmed it or sped through it in a Bible reading plan. But I want you to know this morning that the book of Numbers has great application to our lives today. In the original Hebrew, the title for the book of Numbers is In the Wilderness. It's a much better title. You see, because the book of Numbers tells the story of the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness between Mount Sinai and the Promised Land. 
And in many ways, it's a cautionary tale about what happens to an entire generation who failed to believe and trust in the promises of God. A generation who didn't listen to God and his promises and instead trusted in the lies and slanders of an unbelieving culture. And just like Israel, we are prone, prone to walk in a wilderness. This part of our lives, in between what God has already done in sending Jesus, his death and resurrection for our salvation, and what he has not yet fulfilled in the last days, we too now, we find ourselves in a wilderness. And if we're honest, we spend most of our lives trying to insulate ourselves from that wilderness, seeking comfort, and seeking ways to distract ourselves, trying to pretend that life is not as difficult as it truly is. But every once in a while, every once in a while, we are confronted with the wilderness that we live in. When we experience heartache and grief and loss and shame and guilt and difficulty and strife, we are reminded that we too are a wilderness people. And just like the people of Israel, when we find ourselves in the wilderness, it is so easy to become disoriented and to become lost. And just like them, we are prone to believe the slanders of our unbelieving age rather than trust in the promises of God. And so this morning, as we continue our sermon series, The Life of Moses, and we look at the book of Numbers, this is what I want you to know, that God has called us to a dissenting hope. I want you to see what it looks like to trust in his promises as we live life in the wilderness. First thing I want to look at this morning, I want you to look at the slander of unbelief. And I want you to look with me at Numbers 13, verse 1. This is the central point to the book of Numbers. This is the climax, Numbers 13 and 14. In verse 1, we're told that the Lord came to Moses and told him to send out 12 spies to go into the promised land. One spy representing each and every one of the 12 tribes. Now, the people of Israel are now on the brink of entering the promised land. They are on the verge. And I want you to consider all that has happened to bring them to this point. This is the same land that was promised to Abraham when God made a covenant with him in Genesis chapter 17. This is Genesis 17 verse 8, where God promised Abraham, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is God's covenant with Abraham. And I want you to think about all that has happened between then and this point, all that God had done to bring them to the edge of the promised land, the promise he gave to Abraham, the call he gave to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and then providing a ram to die in his place all that the Lord did through Moses and rescuing the people of Israel out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, sending the 10 plagues, rescuing them through the Passover, parting the Red Sea, giving them the law, forgiving them, 
and renewing his covenant with them even after they worshiped a golden calf. God has now brought them from that place at Mount Sinai now to the edge of the promised land. They're finally there. And so the Lord instructs them, go and spy it out. Go on a reconnaissance mission for 40 days and come back and report all that you see. Verse 25, we're told at the end of 40 days, the spies return. Verse 26, they come to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel and they brought back a word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Now I want you to put yourself in their place. If you are among the people of Israel that day, you've been waiting for 40 days. With all that you've been through, you're finally to the edge of the promised land. You've been waiting for 40 days to hear what's it like. Is it all that we had hoped for? Is it a good land? They're finally ready to hear what they've had to say. Verse 27, and the spies tell them, we came to the land which you sent us and it flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. Can you imagine their excitement? The land is good. But then notice what they say in verse 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. There's a couple things I want you to notice about their report. First, I want you to notice what the report says. The land is good and the people are large. The land is good, it's a good land, it offers a lot for us, but the people are too large for us to be able to go in. That's the other thing I want you to notice about the report is what's not in it. Not once do they mention the name of the Lord. Not once do they say, this is the land that God promised to us. No, this is the land that Moses, you've brought us to. Not once they say, the Lord is with us and he will help us enter the land. No, they say, the, the people are too large. There's no way that we can enter in. Imagine the crowd, the people of Israel, what they must have now thought from excitement to complete chaos and fear. Evidently, this is what happened because of what happens next in verse 30. We're told that Caleb quieted the people before Moses. And he said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are able to overcome it. Now, this is what's going on here. 12 spies go out on a reconnaissance mission to report back about the land. 10 spies give a report that the land is good, but the people are large. And now we're told Caleb, and later we're told Joshua, two of the 12 spies say, no, no. Don't listen to them. The land is both good and the Lord is with us. Listen to what Caleb says again, verse 30. Let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. And what we see unfold is this debate between two sides. A majority report, 10 spies saying, the land is good but the people are too large and we can't go in. We cannot go into the promised land. We'll never make it. In a minority report, a dissenting voice of just two spies, Caleb and Joshua, saying, no, don't listen to them. We can go in. We are able to overcome it. Verse 31, we're told, then the men, that's the other 10 spies who had gone up with them, said, we are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we are. And then the report begins to take on a life of its own. It almost becomes the stuff of legend. 
Listen to what they say, verse 32. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied, saying the land through which we had gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw are of great height, and there we saw the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. I wish we had a lot of time to just park here. Let me just say a few things about what's going on. Maybe you've heard this word before, the Nephilim, and you're wondering what on earth is this talking about? Let me tell you why it matters. See, the Nephilim were told about really an obscure spot in the book of Genesis, Genesis 6. And the word Nephilim could be loosely translated giants, men of great height. They were known as the men of renown. The Bible tells us in Genesis 6 that they're the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of man. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, two basic theories. One is that this is the offspring of angels and humans that have produced giants. If you've never heard that before, you're like, wow, the Bible is amazing. (laughs) And it is. But there's another theory. Theory that says, no, the sons of God, the daughters of man is simply talking about believers intermarrying with unbelievers. And that's the Nephilim. Whatever the case may be, what we know is that they were of great height. They were known as the men of renown and they were legendary. And so here we see the 10 spies giving this majority report saying, that's what we saw. Literally they're saying, we can't go to the promised land because it's filled with giants. It's gonna make us feel like grasshoppers. What I want you to see this morning is how much they're beginning to allow their fear to overtake them. They're now exaggerating. Surely they saw probably people bigger than them and perhaps they saw fortified cities, lots of people in them, but now their fear has overcome them. You see, because the other thing we know about the Nephilim is that they would have died at the flood. They would have completely died out, so what is it that they saw? They saw fear. You see, and this is what fear does to us. Fear is so closely associated with what we worship. We tend to fear the things that we worship. You think, well, how could that be? Well, the reason that we worship money is because we, we also, we are afraid of being uncomfortable and afraid of having lack. Or, or the reason that we worship other people because we're afraid of what they think of us and how we are seen. In all these ways, when we fear other people or we fear things, we fear these things and we fear these people and we fail to fear and worship God. And that's exactly what happens here. Ed Welch, in a great titled book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, it's literally what's happening here. He says that fear of man is always part of a triad that includes unbelief and disobedience. And that's exactly what we see happen here. Their fear becomes unbelief, which gives rise to disobedience. Look with me, Numbers 14, verse one. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. We've seen this word grumbled over and over again in the book of Exodus. Here it is once more in the book of Numbers. 
They grumbled. The word here is like a vote of no confidence against Moses and against God. Once again, they are denying that God can take care of them and they are presupposing that they know better. Look with me, verse two. The whole congregation said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. How often have we heard the people say this throughout the book of Exodus? Every time they were hungry, every time they were thirsty in the desert, they would grumble and complain and question God and say, wouldn't it would have been better if we had just stayed in Egypt? Wouldn't it be better if we'd go back to slavery? Now notice they're adding on to that. They say, wouldn't it be better if we just died in this wilderness? It would be better for us to die in the wilderness than to go into the promised land. Do you hear how deceived, how confused the people of Israel are? How long they've been waiting to enter the promised land and now they think it would be better to die in the wilderness than to go in. They continue, verse four, they say to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Make no mistake, this is mutiny. And at its core, that's what every single sin is. It's mutiny, high treason against the king. This is outright rebellion, fear that became unbelief, that became disobedience, that has become rebellion. They've rejected God's covenant. They've rejected the promised land. The thing that I find most frightening about this passage is not simply that they rebelled against God, it's why. Do you notice? They rebelled against the Lord based on the report of 10 people. Not one of them saw the land for themselves. Not one of them saw that it was good. Not one of them saw one of the so-called giants. They had launched a rebellion against Moses and against God based on the false testimony of 10 people. In chapter 13, verse 32, we're told that it was a bad report. In Hebrew, the word for bad report is the word for slander. In other words, it wasn't just a bad report because it was inaccurate. It was a bad report because it was slander. It was a half-truth that had become a lie. Sure, maybe there were large people in big cities that were all fortified, but their conclusion was completely wrong. Good land, large people, we can't go in. It was a lie. They slandered the promises of God. And what I want you to understand this morning is that it took 40 days for that slander to reach the people of Israel. It takes 40 seconds for us to be slandered today. How many slanderous statements do we hear each and every day? Bad reports about the world we live in, half-truths that become a lie. So this morning I wanna ask you, what lies are you believing? 
What slanderous reports are you prone to believe? Half-truths that become of lie, lies like the culture is winning, therefore the church must be losing. Lies like our country is falling apart, therefore the kingdom of God must be failing. All forgetting the promise that Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and that the kingdom of God is here and now. Perhaps for you, it's the lie that you're worthless. You don't amount to anything. That because you continue to fall into that besetting sin that you can't seem to shake, that God is no longer with you and he will not equip you to overcome the temptation that you face. Perhaps others for you, it's the lie that there is nothing in this life except for disease and grief and cancer and depression and anxiety. And so why bother fighting anymore? Each and every day we are inundated with slander and lies. And the question for us this morning is what report are you going to believe? Because there in the middle of this majority report that slandered the promises of God there was a voice crying out in the wilderness, a dissenting voice of hope that said God can be trusted. So the second thing I want you to look at this morning, I want you to see the dissension of hope. Look with me at Numbers 14, verse five. We're told that after the people rebel, Moses and Aaron fall on their face, Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes. This is an act of mourning. It's as if they are witnessing a death before their eyes. And so they are grieving, and in the midst of their grief, verse seven, Joshua and Caleb courageously deliver a dissenting message that cut right through the slander of the 10 spies. They contradict everything they say, and they say in verse seven, the land which we had passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Notice where they begin. Not simply with the land, but with the Lord. Why is the land good? Because the Lord has brought us to it. And he will lead us in. Verse nine, they continue, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Notice now the conclusion. Yes, maybe the people are large, but the Lord is with us. And where you say that the land will devour us, know this, that with the Lord on our side, these giants that you speak of will become bread for us. The Lord is with us. He will lead us into the promised land. He will be with us just as he has always been because he is a covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling God. It's a dissenting message, a minority report, just two among the 12. How would the people respond? 
and hearing this dissenting message, this dissenting message of hope, how will they respond? Verse 10, we're told, then the congregation said to stone them with stones. And so this is the question for you and me this morning. Whose report are you going to trust? As you walk through the wilderness of life and you face griefs of many kinds and difficulty and strife, as you're confronted with the brokenness in the wilderness of our world and you hear half-truths, lies that slander the promises of God, what report will you believe? Because I want you to notice something. Where did the slander come from? Did it come from out there? No. It came from within the camp. It came from among the people. What report will you believe? We believe the majority that slanders the promises of God and says we can't overcome because it's all up to us and we'll fail. But we trust in the voice of the dissenting minority, the voice of dissenting hope that says God is who he says he is. His promises are true and they find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's where I wanna end this morning, the power of God's promise. To look at this final section, I want you to get your Bible or you can turn to a pew Bible. You'll find them there in front of you. If you don't have a Bible this morning, that's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take it with you. This section's not printed in our bulletin. I want you to see with your own eyes what happens next. An incredible interchange between Moses and God. Just as we're told that the people are about to stone Caleb and Joshua, we're told that the glory of the Lord comes down. In verse 11, we're told that the Lord says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. If you've been with us in our series, The Life of Moses, this should sound familiar because once again, the people have rebelled against God and once again, God has said, I must pour out my judgment on unbelief. And you say, well, does that make him cold and vindictive? No, it makes him good and righteous. He must judge sin. And the truth is, if we're honest this morning, every single one of us fall into this camp, prone to unbelief, prone to believe the slanders of our unbelieving age. And so here it is, God saying, I must pour out my judgment. But then here comes Moses, the great mediator of the people, the one whom God has called to be a priest, to come and pray on the people's behalf. Verse 17 Moses prays, now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. Notice what he says. Lord, let your power, let your glory be great just as you promised, just as you said it would. He continues praying, verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Moses prays the promises of God back to him. The same promises we looked at last week in Exodus 34, God's covenant promise to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but by no means clear the guilty. And then in verse 19, Moses prays, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And then notice what God says next. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. What just happened? God sees the unbelief and rebellion of his people and as a holy and righteous judge says, I must pour out my judgment. Then Moses prays the promises of God back to him And notice what God says. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. What is going on here? Did Moses just change God's mind? Can we, when we pray, change the mind of God? It's one of the great questions of the Bible. One of the great questions of the book of Numbers and the book of Exodus. One of the great questions of prayer. There's a couple answers to that question. The first, I think, is good, good to a point. And the first says, well, what we are seeing here is an anthropomorphism. It's a good big Scrabble type word, right? It, it, it simply means that what we are reading here is an interchange from a human perspective of a human being with God. And so it's ascribing to God human language so that we can understand what goes on in prayer. And I think that's helpful, but only to a point because it doesn't enable us to really wrestle with what's really going on here. I want you to notice what God says to Moses. I have pardoned according to your word. Whose word did Moses pray? Was it really Moses' word? No. No, he prayed God's word. Word for word, Moses prayed the promises of God back to him. In other words, what we are seeing here is Moses being conformed to God's covenant promise. We're seeing Moses trust fully in the promises of God. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Can we believe that God ever really modifies his action in response to the suggestions of men? For infinite wisdom does not need telling what is best. Infinite goodness needs no urging to do it. But neither does God need any of those things that are done by finite agents, whether living or inanimate. He goes on to say instead, He allows soils and weather and animals and the muscles, minds, and wills of men to cooperate in the execution of his will. Or to put it more simply, and I've always loved this from R.C. Sproul, prayer does change things, all kinds of things. 
But the most important thing it changes is us. So did Moses change God's mind? No. No, because Moses prayed his promise and in response, God carried out his promises to the very end. God promises to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy and by no means clear the guilty and that's exactly what happens. In verse 21, we read, the unbelieving people of God are now condemned to go back towards Egypt and to now wander in the desert for 40 years before they die in the wilderness, having never entered the promised land. In other words, they got exactly what they asked for. They asked to go back to Egypt. They asked to die in the wilderness and that's exactly what they got. They refused God's covenant promise. They refused to go into the promised land and they wandered in the desert for 40 years until they all died. The 10 spies who delivered a slanderous report all died by a plague. We're told at the end of chapter 14 that some of them decide to go into the promised land now anyways, even on their own, even though God's not with them. And they all die because they tried to do it on their own. And you hear that and you say, okay, I hear that, but where's the loving kindness? Where's the mercy? Where's the pardon in that? I want you to look with me at verse 24. God says, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. The name Caleb means faithful. The name Joshua means savior. Even as God promised to pour out his judgment, as we've seen time and time again, that God saves through judgment. He did it in Egypt and sending the Passover. He's doing it here as he's sending his people to wander in the wilderness for a generation, only now to save a remnant through Caleb and Joshua and the next generation to go into the land and to inherit God's promises once and for all. And many years later, he would send his own son, Jesus Christ, to come and to bear the weight of all God's judgment for our sin of unbelief so that all who are faithful all who believe in God's promises fulfilled and his death and resurrection might enter the promised land forever. So this morning, what report are you gonna believe? Are you gonna believe the slanderous report of our unbelieving age? Or are you going to place your hope in a dissenting message that says God is who he says he is. And reflecting on this passage, the preacher of Hebrews wrote that for we are to come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Brothers and sisters, do you hear his voice this morning? Can you hear his voice in the midst of the chaos and confusion and slander of our unbelieving age? Can you hear his voice? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but hear the voice of the one who is crying out in the wilderness, the one who's proclaiming a dissenting message of hope that God is who he says he is and his promises are true. The voice of Caleb and Joshua calling us to enter into the promised land. The voice of the prophets promising the coming Messiah. The voice of John the Baptist who said, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And the voice of Jesus who bore the judgment of God on the cross for you and for me. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but trust in the dissenting hope of the one who died and rose and is coming again for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you set our eyes on the promised land that is to come? And in looking and believing and trusting in that future promise, would you now reorient our present Would you change the way that we look at life in the wilderness and enable us to trust you, to hear your voice until you come again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand, let's sing together.